sometimes you go to places where, where there is more crime and and you're just used to like being careful in that sense i wanted to live in different places throughout my life i didn't want to stay in the same place i think there's a lot to explore and a lot to learn from different places so i took on that opportunity and i think in that case happiness comes together with the struggle with the effort with pursuing something and and is worthy of pursuing because it's difficult because it's challenging so I think if we were more transparent about the process, people will be more motivated to take on these different skills or take on different projects. It's just, it seems to be impossible because we're looking at the end result from years and years of labor. No one has been born with a skill already in their mind. They all had to learn it and make tons of mistakes along the way. So courage, that's the important one. Living with courage and learning with courage. Welcome back to this week's episode of the I Love Success podcast. I am super excited to be here today sharing more stories and continuing my world tour. I'm almost up to 200 episodes and for the 172 or 73 of those, they were all in person. I refused to meet with anybody online virtually and then a pandemic hit and it was just uh, adapt and overcome. And it's been amazing. It's not as easy to connect as when you meet with somebody in person. Of course, that's my preference. But I haven't been able to travel virtually all over the world and meet with thought leaders that could never meet me in LA. So it's been a blessing in disguise. And today I'm traveling to Montreal, Canada, to meet with Nick Velasquez. I mean, this guy, we just had a conversation for five minutes before, and I, I can already feel that we are going to be friends and uh, I'm going to go to Montreal at some point and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll have Nick over in LA as well. And I mean, he's a passionate learner and he's devoted to the student, he's a devoted student to mastery. He's an author of the popular blog, Unlimited Mastery, where he writes about learning, science, peak performance, creativity, and mastering skills. And I mean, as a martial artist, this is what I do. I study mastery. I want to get better. I want to share journeys. I want to share stories. And I want to just dig deep into what success is, what is the human experience. And I think Nick is going to be the guy to help me explore this even deeper. So let's welcome Nick Velasquez to the I Love Success podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, brother. I'm 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 excited. You know, it's crazy. We we only talk for five minutes, but in some weird way, and don't don't take this the wrong way. It feels like I know you a little bit because you yes. seem so like calm and chill. And <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yes, and we share a lot of things with just discussing martial arts, and that's just something that really bonds people. So yeah, I'm happy to talk about that too. Awesome. So let's let's kind of go back to your original from Colombia, right? Correct. Yes. Is that where you grew up, or? Yeah, that's where I grew up. So I was born and raised in Colombia, and then moved to Canada. It's been like ten years I'm here. So. Okay. Let's talk about Colombia. How how was it to grow up there as a kid? Like what what was the best things, and what would what did you miss, and what did you love, so to speak? Um. Well, you really like the people and that's part of what I miss the most. So the friends that you make growing up, it's hard to build those really strong relationships because you share so much of just growing up together and sharing all these things as as kids. Um, so, of course, that's something that I miss a lot. Then the food, food has a deep impact in, in us uh, for everyone, like for anyone you ask. Um, that's come from a different place. And you ask, me, you ask them what they miss the most about their country is usually food. We have this really strong relationship with the food we grew up with. So that's yeah. something else that I really enjoyed. Um, one of the lessons that I think was important growing up in Colombia is that it, it was a dangerous place and in many ways still is. I mean, it's, it's gotten much safer, but there is a reality that is high crime. Um, so growing up, our parents couldn't just shield us from that reality. Instead, they had to give us the lessons of how to look after ourselves, 
So we we couldn't live in this fairy land of everything's okay, everyone's nice, everyone's is good people. It's like, no, there are many good people out there, but there are also some people out to harm you or they'll try to take advantage of you. So there was a lesson that needed to be there. What's interesting is that growing up, you just assume the world to be that way. It's like you learn to be very careful about your things and to always look after, after your stuff. And then it's only when I moved to Canada where people are like, why are you looking over so much of your stuff? Like it's safe there. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not used to it. And you're always looking back if you're walking at 3 a.m. or so, like going back home from a bar or something, and you're concerned that there's someone following you. And so it's only when you come to a place like this where you're so safe that you realize that it was not okay. Like the way you grew up, like there were some problems, but you assume that they were just the way it was. Um, so yes, you don't recognize it until after, but, uh, like, I love it there. I try to go there once or twice a year. My mom still lives there. So I go visit her and it's just a great place. It's it, the weather, the people, and, and just so much nature. It's amazing. Yeah. I always wanted to go to Colombia. I've heard it's very beautiful and, uh, I really want to go one day. Yes. People fall in love. Um, there's more and more foreigners now living there. Yeah, I bet. And and I'm curious, can we just talk about like that type of awareness that you talked about when you are like always aware of what's going on in your surrounding that you kind of get by being, you know, exposed to to dangers. Do you think mm-hmm. is that a good or a bad thing? In, like how has that served you in other areas of your life? I think it served me when I traveled. So traveling the world Sometimes you go to places with, where there is more crime and and you're just used to like being careful in that sense. Yeah. So like um, you recognize certain ways that people are looking at you or things like that. And like, I know this, like, <laughs> this is not okay. Something's about to happen. Yeah. Um, and then just being careful. Like I see and what happens to a lot of foreigners when they go to Colombia and then if they do run into some trouble or they get robbed, it's like, what happened? Like, well, I was walking like at 2 a.m. on this empty street. I'm like, why were you doing that? <laughs> but they don't get it because they didn't grow up with those things. So for me, the good part is that anywhere I travel, I kind of know how to look after, after myself. So I don't really worry about going to any place. On yeah. the bad side is that you're overstressed yeah. most of the time. So you, that feeling never goes away. So whenever I'm outside, I still feel like there is a looming danger. And that's not okay because you can't really relax. Yeah. So um, that is the bad part. So it does have some good things. But if if you're, I guess it also depends on the person, but I'm oversensitive to that. So I'm always too aware of the surroundings and too concerned about what's around me. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with me, even though I, I didn't grow up with a lot of dangers, but I'm a martial artist. So I... Like in, in Japanese, and I know you know a little bit Japanese, we call it sanshin, yes. and, and okay. that's awareness. And yep. so when I walk in a room, you know, at a party or even at, in my office or every, like I, I see, or a coffee shop, I see that guy looks dangerous. You know, she's right. smiling over there. Someone's crying. Mm-hmm. I see all these things just because that's the way I was trained to see, you know, to see the dangers and be aware of situations so I can interact better yes and i mean it served me very well because i'm aware of things but i think that the negative is it's hard to kind of be totally relaxed unless you're having a couple of mojitos you know (laughs) (laughs) exactly but But uh, even then right even then it's that like you're like okay i'm ready you know for whatever life brings you but to me the part that i appreciate the most about my culture and growing up in colombia it's just the warmth with people. I mean, you feel so welcome when you're there. And that's what foreigners fall in love with, is that everyone's so nice. You can strike a conversation. Ten minutes later, they're inviting you over to their house and like, let's go to a barbecue. And and yeah. it's that friendliness and that laid-back attitude and just being very helpful. And sometimes you don't find that in North America. It's, it's a little bit of a more distant culture. Not that it's good or bad. It's just I, I grew up differently. But I, I try to keep that with me and trying to be a good host to anyone that visits. Um, so that part I, I appreciate a lot. I really like about the culture there. 
what's the best lesson uh, your mom have taught you about life that you want to carry on to your next generation? It was my mom and my, and my dad, I would say both of them. And they put a lot of emphasis on education. So um, we were well off uh, for, for Colombian standards. And like whatever was spent, whatever I asked if I could spend money on, it would only be on learning. So if I wanted to buy like expensive clothes or something, it would always be no. Like if you want, hey, I, I want this really nice thing, like a nice watch or something, like no, no, no. But hey, I want to go to the States and study music, which is going to cost more than everything else I just described. <laughs> yes. So everything that was learning related, it was a yes. Um, so anything I wanted to study, any class I wanted to take, they were like patrons for, for all the arts that I tried to learn for sports, like all those expenses they were taken care of because they wanted me to learn as much as I could. Even if they thought that maybe I was not going to stick with it for long, it was giving me that opportunity to learn whatever I felt I wanted to learn at the moment. And I value that a lot. So my luxury basically became learning. And to this day, that's what I spend most of my time and my money on. It's, that's what I love the most. So I pick up new hobbies all the time. I, I'm always learning. I feel like my day is not complete if I'm not learning something new. And I guess that comes from my parents and they they read a lot so our house had mostly books more than anything else so we didn't have like really nice big tvs or something but we had like a big uh bookshelves and just anything that was learning related and reading and studying and that was what they tried to cultivate in me i love that uh, do you recall any of the books that, that was on those bookshelves well, I remember on the finance side, there was the Rich Dad Poor Dad, which kind of set me off a, like this path of looking for financial freedom. Um, but we have we had like some literature, at, same as some how-tos. So we had Dostoyevsky's and like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and like a lot of literature, which was my mom's side. And then my dad would be more on the how-to guides, encyclopedias, things like that. So I had like that mix between reading philosophy, but also reading about how to do something very practical. <laughs> I love that. And, and I think that's, we're talking about, it's, it's uh, uh, for me, that's martial arts, right? There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a deep sense of philosophy, but there's also a very practical how to survive yes. in this world. Yes. Uh, and can we just talk about like, when you were when you were a young kid, like when did you decide that you actually want to move to another country? Did that come early, or or was that something that just came up later on? That was a, an opportunity I had. So it was my mom that first immigrated to Canada, yeah. and then she sponsored me to come here. And because I wanted to get into real estate, then there was a bigger opportunity in North America because of the way like financing and mortgages work here. Yeah. So I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the financial side of my life. And I was happy to just go somewhere else. Uh, like I wanted to live in different places throughout my life. I didn't want to stay in the same place. I think there's a lot to explore and a lot to learn from different places. Yeah. So I took on that opportunity and I like it here a lot. It's very nice. And what, what did you learn like from moving to a new country? Like what, what, what was the biggest challenges for you? Oh, a lot. So one, obviously the language. And did you know any, 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 what's the first language in Montreal? Is it French or English? It's French. French. Yes. Oh, wow. So you didn't know any French? No, I didn't know any French. Oh, wow. I, I knew English when I came to Montreal, but can you survive with English? Can you do business with yes, English? Yes, you or? can. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Most of my life is running in English. I do speak okay. French and have to speak French every now and then, but um, I can survive in English. The thing is that they're very protective of their language and there is a whole history behind that so there was a revolution that was mainly language related and they have some crazy things going on with the language they even have a language police believe it or not <laughs> yes so if you're if the name of your business is bigger in english than in french you get fined and you you can't be closed down but if it's <laughs> spanish it's fine it's just is this war between english and french has been going on for generations <laughs> I love that. but but i love that about the city because you have that clash between these two different cultures it feels like north america but it also feels like europe and you hear english you hear french it's like all these things mixed up it's an amazing city i can't recommend it enough wow uh... yes. 
But back to your question. So what was difficult? Uh, so one of the things was the language. And then the second one was getting used to minor things in customs, like the way people do things. Um, when I was talking about Colombia and people very, being very warm and be, being very friendly, um, I didn't find that here. So in Colombia, if you go into a shop or at least when I used to live there, you could go in like, hey, how's it going? How's the business doing? And everything. And you just strike a conversation. And before you know it, you're talking about family and other things. Yeah. And here I'll be going into a shop and like, hey, how are you? How's everything going? And they'll be like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> it felt like I was trying to set up something, you know, because they're not used to that level of friendliness. So it comes across as me setting it up to then ask for something. Yeah. So like becoming a little bit colder and more transactional instead of relationship based yeah. that was a challenge because that's not how i like to do things yeah i like to build relationships but if here it feels like a lot of it is just transactional and it's not good it's not bad it's just the way it is getting used to it it's uh, it was a challenge yes did you change because of that i think i've changed a lot yes when i go back to colombia i i noticed that in my interactions with people it comes across as being more distant and colder. Yeah. And when I see my friends, um, so the friends that live there and they're interacting with other people, it's like, oh, I, th I think I've lost some of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's hard because I, you know, I, obviously I grew up in Sweden, but as you can see, I'm originally okay. from like a, a Balkans, Macedonia, and we're a warm country. You know, we strike mm -hmm. up a conversation with our neighbors. We like we know everything about each other. Like yes, this is Colombia, yes. and uh -huh. I mean now now I'm in LA, and I'm you know I'm I'm trying to still always be that person, but mm -hmm. it's very easy to get caught up in this transactional way of living, right? Uh, yes, and I don't know, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. Me neither, me neither, but it's because it was the way I grew up. So like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's not how we do it. And I think the goal should be flexibility. It shouldn't be being one or the other all the time. Yeah. But whenever you need to be one, then your dad is like, let's say if you have a business meeting, then you're, you become formal and that's okay. And you can be that person when it requires you to be so. So I think flexibility is the goal. Um, one of the things that has been challenging, and I still, I struggled with it for a long time until I traveled to Japan. Yeah. Um, so that is that in North America, it's very valued, the idea of like, oh, that person tells it like it is, like being a straight shooter and those things. And it's like a quality to be admired. And I always struggle with that because in my culture, you kind of go around the corner and you say things like in a very polite way. And that's not appreciated in North America. They value more like, Yes, he tells it like it is. Yeah. And then when I went to Japan, I always felt bad and I thought I needed to change. And I got to Japan and I noticed that the foreigners that were too direct, they were basically exiled to the Japanese. That's very rude and it's very bad manners. Yeah. Then I realized, oh, it's not that I needed to change. I was in the wrong environment for that kind of behavior. Yeah. So you just try to learn to be flexible whenever in Japan, like trying to be very mild-mannered and going around the corner and not getting into conversations that are too direct because that's what they like. They like to keep a balance between the group. Where in North America, so it's a lot about the individual. To me, I feel like it, there is some selfishness in you saying things just the way you think they are because it's just you satisfying your thoughts. But there's also a lot of the message that is how it's being interpreted because the way you said it, it's not necessarily the way someone's hearing it. So to me, just the, the fact that you're, oh, well, I said it like it is. No, you're saying it the way you think it is and you have the added arrogance of believing that's the absolute truth. <laughs> um, but I try to navigate both. It's like trying to be less conversational and more direct and transactional when I'm in North America and then more relationship-based when I'm in Japan and Colombia. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think one, one thing that I've, I've noted is that like when I'm totally congruent with who I want to be, of course I adapt to different situations, but when I do try to bring that warmth, it scares some people away, yes. but it also attracts people that are on the same frequency as I am. Yes. So yes. the more that I do that, I might lose out on something, but the people around me are mm -hmm. In aligned with what I what I'm 
doing. And I think I'm just lucky because being in LA, it's so, so international and there's people yes. from everywhere. So you, you have that opportunity to align with, with people and you don't need to, you don't need to align with everybody, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm curious, like, what's your definition of success? I mean, you, you're working on mastery and like, I want to redefine success. That's why I'm here. So, so like, what's your definition of success? Sure. That's a tough question. I wouldn't know. And, it, and it's something that I struggle with um, lately because, so I have my business side and that has nothing to do with what I write, which is more like on learning skills and mastery. And I have, so this financial side and I'm thinking, what do I want it to be kind of my legacy and the things, how do I offer value back to society and to the world? And there are different ways to do it. Like if you're good at making money, it could be you make money and then you donate to the causes that you believe in or you help your community. And there is value in that. If you're good at that, then you can do that. On the other side is, well, I also have something to offer, which is all the research, all the study that I've done on learning. So to me, there will be like different paths to success. And the success would be like, how do you improve your life and also the lives of people around you? And the path could be different, but then the the end goal is kind of the same: is you making your life better and making the life of those around you better. Yeah. So, so success is improvement. I would say so. Yes. And it would be the philosophy of never-ending improvement. That's the concept from the Japanese, the kaizen. So, it's the pursuit of of improvement, just for its own sake, knowing that you'll never get to perfection. But you're just on that path of always um, trying to be better. And it is a struggle. It's, it's not easy, but it's a struggle that is worth it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm confused about, you know, because I'm th- I think it's, I see a lot of successful people. I meet a lot of successful people. And then I kind of look at them and try to analyze their life. And I, I'm questioning, are they happy as well? Yes. Uh, so I, I firmly believe that being successful, quote unquote, whatever that is, and being happy, I think those can walk hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's really, really difficult because you, the more successful you get, especially financially, uh, the more harder decisions you have to make, or even as an athlete mm-hmm. or in any given field, like the pressure is on now and and being congruent with what makes you happy yes. when you're under fucking pressure, mm-hmm. it's not easy. Yes. Uh, so can we just talk about that? Like, what's your definition about happiness? And can those, can those actually walk hand in hand? Or, mm-hmm. or how, do we, how do we even build a good life, you know? Yeah. So f- just finishing it up with what you were saying on, on success. And I think that's just a very personal subject. I don't think there will be an objective measure for it. I think for, like, it depends if at the end of your life, you cannot look back and you say, this was worth living. And I feel good about the things that I did and the people that I influenced. So for example, with my mom, she wanted to stay at home. And so she decided not to pursue a career and then dedicate her time to raise my brother and myself. And she's happy about that. And I look at that and like, is that not success? Yes, it is. That's what she wanted to do. And she's proud of it. And she made those sacrifices to give us a better life. And that was her goal. Um, for someone else, it could be making a lot of money. Like, and I'm no one to say that's the wrong path. Like if that's really what fulfills you and that's what you want to look back to and say, yes, this is what I wanted to do, then that's success for him. Um, So yes, and then happiness. I don't know if happiness is what we should be struggling towards. It's, It's more like fulfillment. And that comes with struggle and it comes with pain and it comes with sacrifice. But it's that idea like, was this life worth living? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then that would be the success and not necessarily happiness. I think happiness in a way would be like a, a burst of emotion that is not necessarily long lasting. Yeah. So it would be like the whole emotion. If we want to, I kind of think of a, a different analogy for this, but it will be like sex. So you have like an orgasm, but you have the act. So like happiness would be like the orgasm. It's like that moment when your brain is releasing all these chemicals. Yeah. That would be the idea of happiness. But you're not, if someone told you, you can only have orgasms or you can only have sex, which one would you choose? Like one would be kind of co- incomplete without the other. 
Yeah. So to me, like that part of the act becomes as important. So it's the process and the feeling. So the happiness is just that emotional response to a process that you've been following. So we cannot remove the process from the effect. And I think in that case, happiness comes together with the struggle, with the effort, with pursuing something and, and is worthy of pursuing because it's difficult, because it's challenging. So it's like two coins, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something. It's, it's the full human experience, right? Mm-hmm. How, can we, how can we laugh if we don't know how it feels to cry, right? How can, yes. we, how can we feel joy if we don't know pain? Uh, it, and I mean, it's true. The, the only thing is like when we are causing ourselves pain, you know, because there's, there's so many limiting beliefs that I see around me and it, it hurts me to see people that have all this potential, but they're putting all these boundaries on themselves. Uh, like, do you have any ideas or tips for, for people that are like, like, I believe anybody or everybody has some type of potential in life. Yes but I hear it all the time. No, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And you see that. And yes. I mean, I don't know, like what, what can you, like what, what can you say to help, help with that? Yeah. I think one of the best things that we can do for that is like, we're so used to seeing the, the performance of things, the end result. So an example I'd like to bring up is if you go, if you see a magic illusion, like let's say the magician vanishes a card and makes it reappear in an impossible location. As the spectators, we see that and we're amazed by it. Like that, that's so impossible. Like how did this happen? But if we could peek behind the illusion, we would find this process that anyone can replicate through the study and practice of sleight of hand. So I think that people get caught up on the performance, on the glamour, on the end result. And so they think that they, they cannot do the same things that they're heroes. It's like, that's beyond them. They think they don't have the capabilities, um, the talent, the whatever their limiting belief is because they're not seeing the process behind it. But when you see the process, that motivates you. So if you see how something's done and like the amount of work it takes, it's like, oh, I could do this too. Things like people don't want to show us the process because it's not as glamorous. So it's better like you pick up a book. It's like, that author rewrote that thing so many times and it went through so many days of doubt on self-loading. But then you're seeing the end result of there's so many drafts and like, of course, that sounds great, but you didn't see the first draft. If you could read the first draft, it's like, I could do this too. <laughs> so I think if we were more transparent about the process, people will be more motivated to take on these different skills or take on different projects. It's just, it seems too impossible because we're looking at the end result from years and years of labor. Yeah. And speaking of that, like, uh, why did you decide to write a book and how, how was that process for you? Yes. The process was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And so I decided to write the book because I've always been obsessed with learning. I like taking on new skills, but I was always frustrated how difficult it was moving from knowledge into skill. So one thing is knowing about something and another thing is knowing how to do it. So it's very easy to gather knowledge about a thing. So let's say you could know a lot about painting, but not know how to paint anything. So I was frustrated by how long it would take to go from one to the other. And like, how do I cross that bridge? So that led me into this rabbit hole of studying as much as I could about neuroscience and then learning, peak performance, mastery, And I was trying to find a book that was a guide for me to learn anything I wanted. I couldn't find that book. So then it just started compiling and putting all this information together. Halfway through it, I realized if I'm going to do all this work, I might as well just put it out there for other people so they don't have to go through the same pain I'm going right now. They don't have to read all these hundreds of books to, to get the information that is really valuable, that it's applicable. But had I known how much work was ahead of me? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I would have done it. Like I was lucky that I was ignorant of how much work goes into a book. But I'm, I'm happy that I put in the work. Uh, it was a long process. It was a couple of years of research and a couple of years writing. And then the rewrites, the editing, all those things. And finally, like going into publishing, all of it is challenging. Um, but writing, I think what I got the most out of it 
is that it forces you to do the work every day. You can't write the book in one day or or a week. You could write maybe a first draft if you're like some kind of monster, but for most people, writing a book in a week is not is not reasonable. Maybe not even a month for the for a first draft. So writing forces you to pace yourself and to put in the work every day and to take on a task that seems so it's so big, so beyond your capabilities and just saying, you know what, just the next step and then the next step and then the next step. So I found that with martial arts, I found that with writing and I found that with bodybuilding that I need to put in the work every day and just trust the process that I'm going to get where I want to go. So it's very humbling because you don't see a lot of progress day by day and you're, you're going with the trust of knowing that somehow one day you're going to get where you want to go. That was the biggest lesson for me in writing. It was like uh, the first drafts are horrible. They're just horrible. And then you try that the next one is not that bad. And then the next one is a little bit better. And then, hey, this is taking shape and now it looks good. So it's also taking, because writing and a few crafts, they have this distinction where you can improve your skill and you can improve your product, which are two different things. So I, I was working on improving my writing skills But then once you're writing the book, then you're trying to improve the book itself. So they both, they go hand in hand, but they have a different process. That was very interesting about uh, learning to write and putting the book together. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is sometimes you, you just have to take a leap of faith because there's, you know, it's so easy to, to sit at home, you, you know, you see a, or listen to a podcast like this and, and you, you maybe you're in Colombia right now. And you're like, wow, Nick actually moved. Like he's in real estate. He's writing a book. He's doing all these things. And you're like, no, I can't do that. But sometimes you just have to take that next indicator action, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think even Bill Gates said it, we underestimate what we can do in a uh, we overestimate what we can do in a year, but underestimate what we can do in a decade. Right. Because it all adds up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think sometimes I think you should just go for it. Like, for example, when I started my podcast, I didn't know shit. I didn't have the audio equipment. I didn't know anything. Yeah. But the universe aligned, you know, my friend Malik helped me, another friend that uh-huh. I know now, uh, Toby, he helped me. And like, now we're almost 200 episodes in and it's changed wow. my Congrats. life. Yes. But it just took that one decision to get started and just do another mm-hmm. one. If you want to go to the gym, do another one. If you want to write a book, write one page. Yes. Like, so I think we're on to something here. And can you just talk about your like your blog? When when did you decide to start writing there and how, how has that been, you know, a, learning to to kind of put words on your thoughts yes so the blog i started at um halfway through working on the book and the idea is i need a a a way to promote the content and then to start writing some articles about um about the book it it was going to be like the same things so these ideas i'm going to be putting them in the blog but then I spend most of my time writing the book and there is kind of a different tone that they need to take. So I do enjoy the book side more than, than the articles in the blog because then articles, they kind of have to follow a certain structure in a way. So they, they're more shareable and things like that. And that's not really what I'm into. Like in, the book allows you to just flesh out the entire subject yeah. instead of trying to condense it in you know, like a a format that is for or current ADD that we all have. I know. Right. <laughs> That's why I love having a podcast that is in long yes. format because I don't give a shit. Like if no. you want to listen and go deep, this is the podcast. If you want yes. like a one minute uh, clip, this mm-hmm. is not it. Like if you want to dig deep, yes. you want to hear people's ideas and thoughts. Mm-hmm. This is it. We're sharing raw like honestly, and some things are going. Some things happen when you share a conversation with somebody for a time, yes. for a, for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. We all know that when we meet. Sometimes we we've been on a train or before iPhones, before everybody was on their phone. Like, and you meet somebody in an airplane or an airport, and you you truly start talking. And like after three, four hours, you start sharing things that, like, are 
amazing, you know? Yes. And of course, we're trying to condense that a little bit into about one hour or so. Yeah. Uh, I want to. Sh- I, I know you. You. You're talking about setbacks and plateaus and things mm-hmm. like that. Can you just share, like, what was the toughest point in your life, and and how did you overcome that? Uh, do you want to know about learning skills or just in my life in general? Because I mean, I've had both. Uh, we can do both. First of all, yes. I want to do. I want to go personal and kind of. Uh, see like what happened in your life and how did you overcome that and then yes. i would love for you to share learning skills as well i think the hardest part in my life for me has been the death of my father yeah. so thank you i think that's the that's the most challenging part because it's just something you can't do anything about you feel completely powerless so you're at the mercy of life and as angry as you can be as sad as you can be there's nothing you can change about it. And it happened so suddenly. He wasn't even sick or anything. It just kind of happened from one moment to another. Um, like I had spoken to him 30 minutes before and then someone called me 30 minutes later, like your dad passed away. It's like, that's not possible. He was okay. just perfectly fine 30 minutes ago. So it wasn't even that process of like you grieving before and then saying goodbye. So like someone just created this um, break in your life that is not going to go away. And the thing is, you don't really get over grief. You just forget to remember, right? It's just something you try to bury in the back of your mind, but it will always be there. And life changes forever. So to me, that was the inflection point of like this broke. Um, At the same time, it makes you go back and realize, am I putting my energy and my time on the things that matter most? It's like, am I being as nice as I could be to my family. So in my family, we weren't really um, much of like loving words and things like that. And that started to change after my dad's passing. It's like, well, it's only the three of us. It's one, I have one brother and then my mom. So we, we should be closer together. And I think in a way we got closer together. Yeah. But um, I don't think there's really a way that you overcome those things. You just learn to live with them. But the, I think that the part that came to me, if we can call it about overcoming a challenge, is you grow more more aware of death yeah. and the fact that we're all going towards there. Because there is an irrational understanding of death. We all know these things. And there is the emotional emotional understanding of it. So, for example, if I say, oh, the universe is very big. Well, we all know that. But there is a different feeling if you go on a moonless night like far in the countryside and you look at up and you see the Milky Way and like, damn, yes. And now you feel it. Now there is an emotional understanding, which is more valuable. Yeah. So always being aware, of course, we're all going to die. And this idea, we have to enjoy life and make the best out of it. But then it, come, it becomes more urgent. It becomes more emotional. So I think it's not necessarily the overcoming, but it's the changing attitude. And that's why like a lot of my decisions change. It's like, do I really want to work that hard or do I need more? Can I live with what I have and then just work less and maybe ded- dedicate more time to my projects, to the book, to serving people in different ways? Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, and like how, like when you made that shift to maybe work less and, and focus more on, on serving, like how, mm what happened with your mind and heart? Uh, because I, I think a lot of people struggle with this, especially if you, like, if you already make a lot of money mm-hmm. and you're going to go back to some, something that's not going to pay as well in, for a while or maybe forever, right? Uh, like, how do you make those decisions and how, how has that felt in your, your, your life? Yes. I think a lot of it has to do with us always looking at what everyone else is doing. And with this pandemic, I think a lot of people came to the realization of like, do I really need to spend that much money on all these different things and like on clothes and on cars and all that stuff because we've been locked up for so long and it kind of put things in perspective. Yeah. So in a way was just focusing more on me. It's kind of funny because just turning on that selfishness of like, let's stop seeing what everyone else is doing and just look inside and see what I want to do and what I really care about. Yeah. And then you start shifting perspectives because we just 
in many ways, all of us, we live on these borrowed dreams. We live on the dreams of other people. And maybe that's not what you wanted. And it takes a moment to step back and say, is that really it? Because you don't know how long you've been pursuing the same thing. That's another thing that I came to the realization when I, I was looking at some books in my bookshelf and I was frustrated because I have so much to read. And I look at some books and I bought those maybe 10, 15 years ago. I look at the book like, I'm not longer interested in this subject. Why do I keep obsessing about it? Yeah. Just put it aside. You don't have to read or follow the dreams that you had when you were 15 or 14. <laughs> like if you change and now you want something else, don't just be so stubborn. Of like, this is what I wanted when I was 14. So I'm going to keep doing it. Like, is that really what you want to do still? <laughs> so I was taking that step back. It's like, do I really need all these things? Is this really what I want to do? And so that changed. It's like putting more emphasis on relationships, friends, family, and then on my work and the things that I, that I appreciate. I'm not a, a huge fan of real estate, for example. To me, that was a means to an end. It was a way of getting a financial freedom, but I, I don't have a passion for it. For someone that does have a passion for it, amazing. Spend as much time as you want. Yeah. So the personal story, I was approached with some investors from the U.S. Um, about two years ago. And they wanted to do huge projects here in Montreal, like next level thing, something that would put me on, on the high road of real estate investing. And I remember walking away from that meeting with one of my partners here. It's like, what happens? You, you, you seem like troubled by it. Like we could be making so much money, but at what cost? This means that I would be working so hard and spending whatever's left of my young years that I could be doing traveling and, and having fun or learning skills and doing stuff that I like, and I'm going to sacrifice them for more money. Like how much do I really need? Yeah. So um, that's something that I've, I decided not to, not to go into just, uh, wow. no, uh, I'm all right. Uh, I want to work on other things. And you're happy with that decision? I think it is the right decision that the reason it makes me think in some way is because Although I'm in a place that I'm very comfortable, I do see people around me struggling. So one of the motivations to keep making money or to keep working to produce more is so I can help them. So yeah. let's say um, I have very close friends that still on that struggle or they're, they're in a job and they don't make enough. And, but one of them, for example, he's... He studied to make change in the environment. So he studied like environmental politics. Yeah. And it, it is hard right now, especially with the pandemic, to find a job in there because, I mean, priorities shifted and not all the companies are interested in, in the consulting for how to make better environmental decisions. Yeah. So I see him struggling. It's like, I, I wish that I could help more, but I don't have that much extra to help. So that's the part that does push me to, hey, maybe you can make more and keep working, not because you need more, but because there's also other people that you could help. And if you figured out a formula where you can make more money, then you can help in that way. So I'm kind of on that. I don't have a straight answer for you because I'm still struggling with that decision. Do I keep, do I stay in real estate and go a little bit deeper and maybe I can help those around me? Or do I just forget about it and then work on the other things like the book and the other projects and serve people that way? So it's a balance and I'm still deciding what, what the next step is going to be. Yeah. And thank you for being so honest. And I mean, I think that's what, where we all are in our lives. Are we like, are we ever certain? Because things can change in an, in a moment. Right. Yes. And we go, I go back to, you know, martial arts and fighting again, but like life is a fight, you know, it's beautiful moments as well, but it is also a fight and and it's evolving just like that book that you bought 15 years ago that you don't care about but it's still there mm -hmm. and reminding you of who you were before and kind of questioning why do i like why do i like that anymore yeah. but it's 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 great to evolve as a human being and, and i'm curious nick like what are you dreaming about now like what is your big big dreams now in life yes. i've been getting a lot into writing and um, I fell in love with the craft as I was writing more. And one of the tough decisions has always also been coming to terms that I won't be able to learn everything I want. It's just too much. Even if you, we optimize the process to the max 
there's still too much and everything's fascinating i love so many subjects i think every subject has something to offer that is amazing and if you have a good teacher even more like it could be accounting it could be anything i remember not liking accounting in university and then when i had my own business like this is awesome i really like it this is fun <laughs> um so everything, everything we created, all these subjects, all these different professions, they have something amazing. And, and I want to learn it all, but I know I can't. So coming to terms with choosing what matters most to me, what I really like. And in a way, it's a good thing that we can't learn everything because now we have to choose more carefully. Yeah. And we understand that we can't learn it all. So it's like, what really moves me? I'm, I'm very against learning hacks, the way of like hacking. Or the idea of like learning something very fast, which usually doesn't happen the way it's promoted. It's, if you look closely into it, it's, a lot of it is just marketing. And one of the reasons is if it became really easy, then it dilutes purpose. So if I told you it takes about two, a month to learn a new language, you will be picking up languages that you don't even care about just because it's so easy. And now you lose track of which ones really matter to you because it becomes a commodity. So it's a good thing that learning is tough, that becoming a master is so tough because that focuses the purpose. That makes you realize what matters to you and making the sacrifices to get there. And what are you a master at? I wouldn't say I'm a master at anything. I've, in my life, I've taken on many skills and I think that's what led me into this path of learning. And I became a student of mastery which is not necessarily mastering itself. And it was, it's, I'm there with everyone in the same process and the same path of looking to become a master at something. And before it was like the jack of all trades. I was learning things here and there. And I think it was my time of exploration. I wanted to know what I liked. I wanted to know what was out there. And now that I have a better idea, now I start narrowing down. So you can think of it like a diamond shape. So first you start expanding, but now I start contracting. It's like, I know what I like. I have an idea of what I enjoy. I enjoy thinking a lot. I enjoy writing, organizing my thoughts. So that's why writing is so attractive to me. It's like thinking on paper. Um, I like being in a quiet place. I'm not so much of the being outside all the time. So a lot of it has to do with personality. And that's the skill that I would like to master. One of the things when uh, I was writing the book and I was thinking, well, what is the authority that I have to talk about mastery if I haven't mastered anything? And then it came on me that that's what forced me to look into all these masters, to study them, to study mastery. Because if I were the master, I probably would have fallen into the illusion that everything that I did it was what made mastery possible. So you start confusing correlation with causation. So like, oh, I brush my teeth every morning. So that must be it. So that's what I'm going to recommend. But then if you start studying many masters, you study 20, 30 of them. And it's like, all of them do delivery practice. All of them make sacrifices. No matter how talented, they really had to work hard in their craft. So now you can distill those principles. So being a student of mastery, to me, it opened up a greater range of possibilities to help people get there than if I were a master myself. So I'm very happy that I had not mastered anything. I wasn't really high on the spectrum on any skill. And then because I wanted to create the book for myself, it wasn't for other people at the beginning. So that was my road to mastery. And that was the whole purpose of the book. And I'm there with you. I'm there with every reader on the same path. Right now I'm narrowing on writing. That's what I want to become really good at. So the following years, and you're asking me like, what's coming next? It's following my own advice and then keeping on this path of mastery and working more on writing. I think the skill that I worked on the most has been uh, music. So I played guitar a lot, heavy metal, and I played for many years and I studied it for many years. So um, that's the one that I took farthest into the process. That's awesome. And uh, I, I like what you were saying about like studying mastery and see correlations. And you were talking about sacrifice, about some other things. Like what, what else have you seen by stud studying masters? Is there any specific uh, things they do that are common in, in, in masters? Yes. Well, the most important or the two most important are long-term commitment and doing the work every day. Yeah. So it's the idea of, I'm going to be doing this for years. 
You're not like, I'm just kind of gonna, gonna try. Like mastery doesn't happen by chance. Yeah. Every master got their mastery because they worked hard at it. It was deliberate. It's not like, oh, it just happened. Like one day I woke up. I was, no, you put in the effort and most likely you put in the effort every single day. So one eye-opener for me, I was watching, like I watched many documentaries and some of these masters and one of them was uh, Usain Bolt. Yeah. So for anyone that doesn't know, which I, I don't think it is, but the, um, so he's multiple time uh, gold medal Olympian for sprinting. And I was watching him train on this documentary and then he's running and then he stops and start throwing up and then keeps running like it's nothing. And I thought like they probably added this because of dramatic purposes or something. I don't think that's real. And then it keeps happening. And then he's being interviewed and he, he lost to you, um, Sky Blake. And he said, after I lost to him, I put so much work on the following months that I was throwing up every single day. I was pushing myself to the max. And when you see that, you realize how little you push yourself. Like there is this guy that everyone thinks is just talented or he was born with much better genetics, which may influence, like that could give him an edge, but it's not the bulk of his skill. The bulk of his skill was putting the work every day and taking himself to the maximum. You could argue that's not healthy, but it doesn't matter. If you want to be at his level, that's what you have to do. And anyone is allowed to use and abuse their bodies in any way they feel is worthy. And to him, that was sprinting. Watching him throwing up like that and just keep going, like he's a, an avoidable part of training hard. is like, wow, yeah. I just don't do anything. <laughs> I'm just I lazy. <laughs> I mean, mastery is so cool because you see that it's, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be able to push yourself and like mastery yes. is not always healthy. I mean, elite is not always healthy or it might not make you the happiest person, but you get, I think you get to experience the highs and lows of life, mm-hmm. you know, because I mean, when, when everything is on the line and you lose in front of thousands of people, you know, that sucks. A winning is like amazing, right? <laughs> so there's like all these emotions that come into your life. And I don't know, like I was an elite athlete for many years. I don't know if I want to recommend that to everybody mm. at all, but it's, I'm happy that I did it. Yeah. So and it's tough. A lot of people don't know. It is. And, and I mean, I think about it, you know, I think about life and, I think we all, in order to feel, you know, content and happy with ourselves, we need to push ourselves into something, even if it's being the best mom I can be, or like uh, trying, trying the best in your little world or big world, whatever you, you want to do. Like, I, I don't care. Like for me, a goal, the happiest man I know is my grandfather and he had two cows and that's the happiest man ever. Like okay. I met people that won everything and I, and yes. has, and are, so, so, so it's not about that, but in his world, he did the best he could and he was mm. content and had peace of mind. And I think we all need to, in order to have peace of mind, some, somewhere along the lines, you, you need to like get out of that comfort zone and push yourself into something, right? Mm-hmm. And having like a, a higher standard for yourself. I love that I spend a lot of time in Japan and the way they do things, their attention to quality, the attention to detail, how deliberate they are, whatever it is they do. It was impressive. I was at this mall and because it's so crowded, like Japan, there's so many people and they need to be cleaning those bathrooms very often. And then I see that they're going to come to clean the bathroom and it's like a team, like a SWAT team. They're lining up, ready to clean those bathrooms. And then they put a ribbon. It's like, Sorry, the bathroom is going to be closed for the next two minutes or whatever it is. And they come in and you see them scrubbing those, those toilets and everything. I've never seen anything like it. It's like, wow, that's taking pride on whatever you do. It's like putting that amount of quality and you see it from everyone. Like you see a cashier at a, at a restaurant and they look like a professional cashier. It looked like they went to university for four years to work as a cashier. It's impressive. Like the pride they take on anything they do because for them is how good 
how well you do the things you're doing and not necessarily what you're doing. If you're cleaning streets, if you're sweeping streets and you're doing it with that level of quality, that makes you honorable. And that's what the whole society is based on, how well you do your job. It doesn't matter what job it is. And I think that's what brings a lot of satisfaction when you hold yourself to higher standards, even if no one notices. I saw some guy, when I live in Japan, I woke up very early, it's like around 4 a.m. or so. I'm walking to the gym and I see this store owner. The store won't open for, for a couple of hours more and he's cleaning the street in front of his shop and then he's vacuuming the sidewalk in front of his shop. I'm like, wow. Maybe most people won't realize it, but it's there. So is, is that idea that you're doing it for yourself, that quality that makes you satisfied with who you are and what you do, even if no one else notices it. So there is this famous story about Steve Jobs that wanted to have the interior of the Apple computer to look gorgeous, even if no one was going to see it. And the story is always told like, oh, wow, he was so attentive to this. So like, that's the whole Japanese culture. <laughs> Everything they do is exactly like that. You buy something and the way they package it, everything is that same attitude. It's like everything has to be on point. There's always has to be quality. And I try to apply a lot of that in my life. Like I'm trying to absorb that from Japanese culture because we get used to that idea of just getting things done. And for some aspects of our lives, yes, it's fine because you don't want to spend a lot of hours, maybe just crafting a simple email that you needed to respond yes to. And then you overthink it. But on the things that matter to you, you should be that attentive to detail. Everything, everything should be careful. Not going too deep into talking about the book, but there is this quote from Michelangelo that starts in the book. And like I read that quote at one point and I thought this is this is exactly what I want to include in the introduction. So then I... It's like, okay, I want to see like what is the context of, of this thing. And I read Michelangelo's biography. Like, oh, that's uh, not enough. Then I took on this lecture. It was like 14-hour lecture on Michelangelo. And then I contacted the professor that wrote the biography and that made the lecture. And he's like the, the biggest expert on Michelangelo. I consider like the highest expert in Michelangelo to have a conversation with him about the quote and things. Like, that's a simple quote. That's it. That's all I talk about Michelangelo in the book. But it's like, it needed to be on point. That to me mattered. And it was the idea of, I know that most people will never notice those things. If I weren't saying them right now, like no one would know about this story. But it's that I, I know, I know. And I know it's there for that reason. So it's living under those quality standards for yourself. I think that's very gratifying. It's gratifying to me and that's when you kind of detach from, hey, is the book so successful or not? Are people going to admire it or not? That's beyond the point. Yeah. The satisfaction came from the process and from holding yourself to a higher standard. I love that. And I think that's the way of, you know, being a, a we call it bushi, like a warrior mm-hmm. in, in, in Japanese philosophy. And, 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 and also in life in general, you know, the other day I was, I was exhausted. I was laying down, I was about to fall asleep, had a lot of things going on with different types of people, different uh, transactions and deals and things like that. And one thing that made me proud of myself was like, Hey, I did the right thing. Mm -hmm. I did, I did what I think thought was right. And I didn't, I didn't, cheat on anybody and I didn't step on anybody's toes just to make myself look better. And was it the best decision financially for me? Maybe not, Mm -hmm. but giving me the peace of mind and and knowing long-term, this is how, who I am and how I show up in life. That's, that's more rewarding than anything, right? Yes. Yes. I agree. So Nick, uh, we're almost almost out of time. I I think oh, I feel wow. like that went fast. I know. I feel like <laughs> that went really fast. So long, you know. We're having so much fun, and I want to learn more about what you did in Japan and all of that. Yes. So I, I guess we have to we have to connect uh, again. Oh, for sure. Uh, but like, I want to. Like, we're all about sharing stories. But at the end of the day, I want the people listening to this podcast to take action. So what would be the first step for them after this show to, to kind of get started on their dreams? Hmm. Let me think. 
one of the things that hold a lot of people back, and this is usually this usually happens in learning skills, is believing a lot of misconceptions. Things like I'm too old for this, or I don't have the talent to do it. So um, I do talk a lot of, about those myths and how they're they're not real. Um, we have proof that they're not real. So going beyond those things and understanding that you are capable of learning whatever you want to learn. That's the greatest power of the human mind, learning. We're all made to learn. We were built to learn. And all skills that exist can be learned. And no skill can resist the relentless attack of delivery practice. If you put in the work, if you put in the effort, you will get better. Yeah. It's inevitable. You will. And then the other part, and this is probably the most important and is as true for life as it is for learning anything, is the willingness to fail, the willingness to make mistakes. So um, I see this often in learning languages. It's where I see it the most often because you there's something so personal about learning a language. You don't want to look foolish. You don't want to make mistakes about uh, in front of native speakers. And I noticed that the people that go out and are willing to make those mistakes to fail, those are the ones that learn it faster. Those are the ones that eventually learn the language and they do it way faster than everyone else. And they fall on the first category on the one that's too shy to try the language. And so it usually takes me way longer. And the important thing that I, I want to mention here is that I'm not advocating failure. It's not failing for the sake of failing. I'm advocating courage. It's the idea of going out there and knowing that you will have to make mistakes to get better at anything. That's the process. We all make mistakes. It's hard to remember that Mozart probably made a ton of mistakes learning his scales and Shakespeare learning to write. We forget those things, but everyone had to go through the same process. Yes, some move faster than others, but we all have to go through the same process. No one skips it. There's no exception ever. No one has been born with a skill already in their mind. They all had to learn it and make tons of mistakes along the way. So courage, that's the important one. Living with courage and learning with courage. Mic drop. Boom. And I want to thank your, what's the name of your parents, Nick? Beatriz and Carlos. Beatriz. I want to thank Beatriz and, and Carlos, Carlos yes. for instilling this knowledge into you, not knowledge, but the idea to invest in yourself and investing in education. And that's something that I advocate for. I love that you do too. And, and I mean, learning is amazing. There's so much to learn and, and, and having the courage to do so, just like you said. Uh, so we are super grateful that you are here uh, spending so much time here with us today. I know I, as a martial artist, I messed up on scheduling and also with the, with the, That's all good. Uh, so it's, it's, I, I'm sorry, I apologize for that, but I'm glad we made this happen and that you were so understanding. It just shows your, who you are as a person and your character and I truly appreciate that. Uh, I know you have a book coming out July 14th, right? Yes. Uh, Learn, Improve, Master, How to Develop Any Skill and Excel at It. If people want to read that, where can they get it? On Amazon. It's going to be on all the retailers, Barnes & Noble. Um, yes, Amazon is probably the easiest. As you get the Kindle, and the audiobook will be coming out um, soon after that. Yep. Is that, isn't that exciting? You, you sound so like... That must feel it is. Great. It is very exciting. The thing is, as I was explaining before, a lot of the joy comes from the process. Yeah. There's the idea that, um, like, the book was finished so long ago, and now it's kind of this is the culmination. But yeah. to me, like, all the joy came like on that struggle, and when you finally finish that manuscript, it's like, yes, I did it. And there is no one there for you to cheer you. So it's funny because the cheering happens after the release. Yeah. When it's been so many months, I, yeah. you needed that cheering on those dips where you felt so hopeless. It's like, mm -hmm. I can't do this. This is not going to work. I hate my writing. And then you're going through all, all this of doubt and then getting better and better. And that's when you needed the cheers. And now the cheers are coming like way, way later. So that's it's an interesting thing that happens with writing and I guess with some other arts. I think about that the equivalent would be, let's say you have to compete in the Olympics but there can't be any spectators and you compete and then they show the race or the competition two weeks later, a month later on TV and everyone's like clapping and everything like, guys, I, I needed that when I was running. 
when I was competing. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. I remember it's it took, a strange feeling. It's strange. I mean, the same thing for me. After I wrote my first book, it took 18 months until it was published. And like yes. I like when it was actually published, it was like just like you say, felt weird. I needed that before. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It's very exciting, but it's different. The satisfaction came from writing it. Now yeah. it's kind of the joy of sharing sharing it with people. And I think I'm more excited more than the launch is to start getting back the stories of people that are applying the things, people that thought that maybe their age were, was holding them back or that they didn't have talent for something and say, hey, uh, reading your book, I, I decided to take on this skill that I always thought I didn't have what it took. And I'm making progress because now I understand the process. I can see the method behind the magic. So I'm more excited to hear about the stories and how people use this information that I wish I had yeah. 10 years ago because that's the book I was looking for. So I really hope that that's going to serve them. And I'm more excited for seeing what people do with it and how they become amazing more than the launch itself. Awesome. Uh, I'm also excited. Uh, thanks again, Nick Velasquez, for joining here today, sharing open-heartedly. Uh, also want to thank everybody that you're still here, listening, watching to our show. I have a big fat mission. I I'm all about serving and helping as much as I can. Uh, my goal is to help at least 10 million people to go after their dreams. I realized very quickly that I need people like Nick in order to do that. And I also need people like you that are here watching, listening. Uh, but for this to actually matter, you need to take some of these tools and implement them into your own life. You need to share this story with somebody else that needs to hear it. Uh, so please show us some love. Uh, we are not charging anything for this. And uh, we, we want you to have this information, but, uh, Applied knowledge is what we're looking for, not just knowledge. So please apply uh, what you like. Uh, try it. Hopefully it works for you. If not, find another way. Uh, check us out at ilovesuccess.co. Almost 200 of these incredible game changers and thought leaders from all over the world sharing open-heartedly for you to enjoy uh, for free. You also get a couple of chapters of my book. Uh, I'm grateful for your time. I want to hear from you. What's your dream? What are you looking to do with your life? Uh, connect with me on uh, Instagram, Peter Jumrukowski. Also, you can find me on info at ilsuccess.com. Uh, I will reply personally to you. So I hope to hear from you. Thank you guys and talk to you soon. 